What a blessing it is to be here this morning once again with the people of God. I hope that you are excited about worshiping God together as a church. It's, you know, we live in a culture where there can be a lot of emphasis on just kind of doing your personal devotions, your personal Bible studies, Bible reading, and uh, maybe listening to some podcasts, watching something on TV. Uh, but what, what a wonderful reminder it is of the truth of the gospel when we come together as the body of Christ, as we do each week. So it's a blessing to be here worshiping our God with each of you. If, few things are, if there are few things that are more contrary to our society's way of thinking, then a wife's submission, as we talked about weeks ago, I think we can say that few things are more contrary to our society's practice than a husband's headship. Frequently it is the case that men in movies and television and even in media and songs, all sort of cultural expression are portrayed very much in opposition to the biblical understanding of manhood. And that extends, of course, most obviously, or shows up most clearly in marriage, where men become husbands. And then all of the sort of delayed adolescence of our culture and all of the passivity and inwardness of the man of the modern world becomes that much more apparent. And so I think it is the case very much that as we talk about family, we see, uh, we, we come crashing into what we readily see in our society when we open up God's Word and begin to look at what it means to be a godly husband. It flies in the face of probably much of what we even think as Christians. Much of the presuppositions that we come here with, even as Christians, because we live in the world. Not of the world, we hope, but in the world. And, and being in the world and, and partially of the world, we, these things begin to seep into our minds. And we begin to conform, not to Christ, but to the world. And so it's the hope that as we go through this series of sermons that we've been in, that our focus will be turned away from the world's way of doing family. The world's way of doing marriage, the world's way of doing child rearing, and will be turned towards God's model, towards God's purposes, and towards God's way. So the series that we're in at the moment is My Family for His Glory, and we've been looking at Ephesians 5, 25 to 33. We've been doing this now for five weeks. We took the first two sermons to look at the context of our passage, and then the second two sermons we looked at wives, and last week and today we have been, will be looking at husbands. And as I said last week, uh, I thought this may go into to three weeks, and it will. So we will, we will be on husbands again next week for our third. Uh, and as I said last week, that's fitting. It's fitting that we should put more focus on the husbands than on the wives because the husbands lead. And because, as we see here, following Paul's example, Paul himself, the apostle, puts more of a responsibility here on, on husbands as he has more to say to husbands than he does to wives. So last week I introduced the idea of the biblical husband as a leader, a lover, and a lamp. These are the big ideas. As you walk away from this passage, uh, verses 25 to 33, the big ideas that you're left with are that the husband leads. He's the head. He leads. 
that he loves. We see this verb repeated throughout this passage. He's to, he's, to lead, he's to love his wife. We see in verse 25, he's to love his wife. Verse 28, he's to love his wife. Verse 33, love sort of going throughout the passage. And so, so as we do a flyover of the passage, we see at the, at the core of what it means to be head, what it means to be a husband, is to lead and to love. And we also talked about this idea of him being a lamp. Throughout this passage, and we have these verses 31 and 32 uh, over here on the wall, and we'll, we'll talk about those in more detail. But throughout this passage, we have Christ and his church being related to husband and wife. That Christ and his church, and the way that Christ relates to his church, and the way that the church relates to Christ, is itself the pattern for how husbands and wives ought to relate to one another. So it is the pattern on a practical level as we as husbands step out into this thing called being a husband. That I may need to move that. I'm probably going to... I'll just scoot this over a little bit. That, thank you. So, so as, we think about, as we think about husbands and wives, we, we, it's clear to us that husbands are to be as Christ is to the church. Husbands are to be towards their wives. And as the church relates to Christ, so wives submit... ...to their husbands. The reality is Christ in the church. We are just a copy, just a metaphor, a picture, a parable, an image of that. But on a practical level, if husbands are trying to figure out... ...how do I step out into being a husband and wives are trying to figure out the same... ...we look to Christ and the church. That's what Paul is telling us as we open up and read through this passage. And so the reason why I said that a husband is a lamp... ...is because he displays Christ. He illuminates Christ as he... ...acts as Christ in the marriage. Just as Christ gave himself up for the church and loved the church... ...so too the husband in the place of Christ... ...playing the role of Christ in the drama of marriage... ...acts in the same way towards his wife. And last week, as we have these three big ideas in view... ...last week we began the process of digging into the details of this passage... ...in order to discover what it means that the husband is a leader, a lover, and a lamp. And there were eight things that I introduced last week. So Jacob, if you go ahead and put that up there for us. Eight things that I think as, as you go through this passage... ...and, and you're looking at the details... These, ...this is what leadership, loving, and being a lamp, I think, entail. So last week we looked at the first three. He destroys... The godly husband destroys. He destroys selfishness in his life. He initiates as Christ came and initiated the salvation for the church. And as he came to the church, the church did not go seeking him. He came to the church. So husbands in their leadership with wives must be initiators. And he perseveres. Christ endures much from us. Much walking away, much lack of trust. Much disregard for his glory, much disregard for his word, much neglect of his word. He endures us, and we know that, right? Because we pray, forgive us our sins, forgive us our trespasses. We pray that, we should, often, because we sin. We sin against God, and we let Christ down, so to speak, in the sense that we, we do not do as, as we've been called to do. We do not often walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so Christ, as our advocate... ...as our mediator, as the propitiation for our sins... ...as the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness... ...he comes to us and endures all of our walking away. And so today we're going to go to the next two. He protects and he disciples. Next week we'll look at the latter three. 
He unites, he provides, and he treasures. I think as we go through these verses, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 33, I think that if we're trying to to flesh out what does it look like to be a godly, Christ-like husband in marriage, I think these eight things are certainly a good starting point. And I think in many ways they cover a lot of what we see throughout the Bible. So I want to start before we get into this with this encouragement for husbands. Maybe, I hope in some ways, that I hope in every way that husbands were impacted by last week's sermon. I hope that your heart has not become hardened. Uh, and I hope that, that all of our hearts remain malleable to the Lord's Spirit. But it might be the case that the, other, the opposite effect took shape in your heart last week. That you became defeated and overwhelmed. So maybe I, I'm looking out over a host of overwhelmed and defeated husbands this morning. Husbands feeling like, man, I give up. I failed and I give up. I can't do this. I mean, eight things? <laughs> you know I mean, I, I, that's, that's, just, that's just not happening. I'm struggling with one or two. So maybe that's you. You're a defeated, overwhelmed husband, and you're sitting here today thinking, man, I'm just going to be more defeated and more overwhelmed when I leave, more confronted with my failures. Here's what I think that you can do. I want to draw just a quick analogy from Joshua chapter 1. As you open up the book of Joshua, there's an interesting scenario here. We have Moses who has died. Now imagine you're Joshua, and you come out of Egypt with the children of Israel, and you see all the ways that God mightily used Moses. I mean, it's incredible. All the things that Moses did, that God did through Moses, as he brought them out of out of slavery in Egypt, as, as Moses walked out, parted the Red Sea, as God parted the Red Sea through Moses, as the plagues, the plagues in Egypt had been given down by God at, at Moses' instigation. And so all of this had happened, and then, and then God had preserved his people in the wilderness, given them water, given them food. Imagine you're Joshua, and you've seen Moses lead these people. And you haven't just seen all these wonderful things that God has done through Moses. You've seen how, how burdened and stressed out Moses is. He asked God at one point to kill him. Because he's got all of these people to lead and they're rebellious and they complain constantly. And Moses is their leader. And so at the beginning of Joshua, the the baton passes to him. Moses has died and now Joshua is going to be the one who leads the people into the promised land. Joshua steps out into a new leadership role. And one of the things that is, is fascinating as you read that, is what God says to Joshua. And here's where I want to draw an analogy. I think this is what God is saying to husbands. Because what we have with Joshua, he's stepping out into a new leadership role that is very intimidating. And as husbands, this sermon series is an opportunity to wake up. It's an opportunity to say, the past is in the past. I'm not going to live like that anymore. I'm not going to be that kind of husband anymore. I'm going to turn around, I'm going to repent, and I'm going to walk towards God's way for me as a husband. And so in many ways, I hope that you can see this as, in, as stepping out into a new leadership capacity, into a new leadership approach. And I want to draw your attention to what God tells Joshua. In that situation. 
The first thing, and I think he, he would say this to each of us as husbands. The first thing he says is, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Every Christian husband can be confident that the grace of God and the presence of God is with him as he carries out his role and responsibility as a husband. You're not doing it on your own. If you were, you'd have every reason to be overwhelmed. Not with eight things, but with one or a tenth of one. Every reason to be overwhelmed and defeated. But we are not doing this on our own. We are doing this with the one who promises that he is with us. And in fact, who lives inside of us. The second thing that he tells Joshua is to be strong and very courageous. Do not be frightened, he says. So probably it's the case that husbands stepping out on this think, you know, th- this, is, this is just not, I mean, I, I could fail here, I could fail here, I'm not, I'm not wired this way, I don't have these strengths, I'm weak here, I'm weak here, my wife's totally frustrated with me, there's no way I could even make any progress because there's so many things I need to work on, I can't do it. You look out into the future and it is a frightening, fearful future, and I think that the Lord is saying to us, Don't be afraid. Be courageous. And the reason that Joshua is to be courageous is because God is with him. That's why. So it goes back to God's presence. It always goes back to God's presence. So you, in the present, can know God's presence, that he's with you now, and you can look out in the future and project his presence there and his grace and his wisdom and all that he's going to supply in the days ahead and know it's going to be okay. I can walk in his way by his grace. And the final thing that he says, and this is very important, The final thing he tells Joshua is this. Meditate on the book. Meditate on the book of the law day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And then he says this. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Guys. We have to make the Word of God central to our lives. All the wisdom that we need in order to prosper and to succeed. This is not a defeated thing. God wants us to be good husbands. We can be good husbands. We can. He's given us His presence. He's given us hope for the future. And He's given us His Word. And He said, read it. Know it. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua could not have led the people of Israel without meditating day and night on God's word. And you can't lead your family. I can't lead my family without making God's word central. So a man who is disconnected from God's word will not be a good husband. It's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. But a man who does can be confident that God will prosper his way. Just as the Psalm 1 man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, he will be like a tree. Bears fruit at the proper time. Leaves do not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Let's look at our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 5. That was a kind of a pre-sermon sermon. sermon. That was just a little introductory material there. Hope that's encouraging. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray and ask for God's grace today. Husbands, just during this time, just really ask the Lord, God help me, God help me. Our Father, we are burdened for our families. We see so much idolatry and so much backwardness and perversion of family in our culture at every point. And God, we're reminded that all the while you speak, not just in an ancient language to an ancient people for an ancient time, but you speak now through your word to 21st century American people. To people all over the world, all times, all places you speak, God. We trust that. We believe that. We see the power of your word. We see as we read it and take it in and apply it to ourselves. God, we see you work. We see wisdom grow. We see grace grow in us. We see love grow and worship grow. And God, you've been so faithful to us. We thank you for those who are gathered here this morning. We thank you for this body, this local church. We pray your blessing upon it, God. And I know that that begins in many ways with the home. As each individual husband steps up, steps out in confidence in your strength and leads and loves and shines forth the glory of Christ well. God, would you help? Would you help us? Would you help me? Would you help every other husband in this room and every other husband who will listen to this podcast, who's connected to this church? Would you be merciful and gracious and kind to us in Christ? We pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit and that in that we will be able, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, to carry out all of these things that your word calls us to. God, help us meet each husband at his point of greatest struggle today, God. And I pray that progress will begin to happen even today. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first activity that we're going to look at today that husbands must have towards their wives is he protects. The biblical husband, this lover, leader, and lamp, protects his precious bride. He protects her. Look at Ephesians 5.25 again. Look at what he says at the end of that verse. He says, We are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we go back just a few verses, a couple of verses to verse 23, and we read these words. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. He is the savior of the church, the one who gives himself up 
for her. So what I think we have here is that Christ is the rescuer who protects his church from danger. At the core, that's what we see with this figure whom we call Savior. He rescues his church. He protects her from danger. He saves her and he keeps her all the way up to the end. As we read through the New Testament, there are a number of things that we see Christ saving or protecting us from. And sometimes we, we just kind of get lost in the generalities of the language. You know, yeah, Christ is our Savior. We just kind of move on. But one of the things I, I, that I found very interesting this week is just to look at the various dimensions. There's, and these overlap, of course, as we think about each of these. They, they're, they're in some ways synonymous in an ultimate sense. But all of these things uh, are, are things Christ has saved us from. Things that would be the case for each of us had Christ not come. Had the husband not come for his bride to rescue her and to see her through and to protect her to the end. So let's just look at some of these. Christ rescues and protects us from final death and perishing. So Hebrews 2.9 says that he tasted death for his people. What vivid imagery is that? He tasted death. The bitterness of death so that we would not have to. And then we read in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Everyone outside of Jesus Christ will perish. Perish. Be done away with. Death eternal. And that is not something, praise God, that will happen to us who belong to Jesus. That's one of the things that he rescued us and protects us from. He protects us from wrath, judgment, condemnation. We read in Romans 5, 9 that we are saved by him from the wrath of God. When you think about Christ as Savior, the first thing that should come to your mind, the very first thing is that, that Christ saves us from the wrath of God. That God hates sin and there is guilt on sin and that the penalty of sin is death and that those who live in sin are separated from God, and not just separated from God, but are at enmity with God, hostile to God in thought, in affections, in everything we do. A person who is unsaved, who does not know Jesus, is hostile to God and under his just judgment. And that manifests itself throughout this life, ultimately manifesting itself in a place called hell, which the Bible has much to say about. We also read in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. So he saves us from death. He saves us from wrath. He saves us from ruin and destruction. We read those words, uh, and I grew up hearing these words quoted very frequently, Matthew 7. So there, there are kind of two gates and two roads. There's the narrow road and there's the broad road, the broad gate. And there are many who go in by it. And where does it lead? The broad way, the broad gate and the broad way leads to destruction. And Jesus will go on to say in Matthew chapter 7 that there are two kinds of people. One who builds his life on the rock and one who builds his life on the sand. And what happens to the person who builds his life on the sand when the storms come, the waves come crashing in? There is a fall and Jesus says, and great is its fall. Destruction, ruin, fall. All of that awaits those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, but not for those of us who do. So we are protected, rescued from destruction. We are protected from evil. What do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? 
Deliver us from the evil one. What did Jesus pray? As we looked at, we went through the Gospel of John. In John 17, Jesus prayed, keep them from the evil one. He prayed that to his Father. And Galatians 1.4 says that Christ gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. And so all that we, we think about, we see in this world, all of the evil that goes on around us. We've seen it uh, lately quite a bit. You know, this many people killed here, and this many people killed there. And all of the things that we just run into in the news, and that we run into in our own personal lives, as we see the evil in our own hearts, we see the evil in other people's hearts in the world, what we know is that our Savior, our Rescuer, our Protector has delivered us from the evil one and from this present evil age. This evil age, the evil that afflicts us even in temptation, in our own sin, will not have the final word. Not for the Christian. And then I love this one. We are protected from being lost or being snatched away. What a vivid image that is. Being snatched away from Jesus. You imagine someone, Jesus walking with someone and and a robber, a thief comes up, a kidnapper comes up and just grabs us and yanks us away from Jesus. Jesus says in John 10, 28, no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. Christ, our Redeemer, our Rescuer, our Protector, will not let us be lost. He prays in John 17, 12, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. And then we get just after that, Jesus goes into the garden. He's about to be arrested. We looked at this when we we studied the Gospel of John. And we see that Jesus goes out to meet those who have come to arrest him. He goes out and he says to them, leave these men alone. You've come for me. And then the writer, John, goes on to tell us that that was to fulfill what he had said earlier in chapter 17. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. Jesus knew that had his disciples been arrested at that time, they would have fallen away. So what does Jesus do? He protects them from falling away by protecting them from being arrested. How many times do you think that the Lord Jesus has protected you from a host of things that had you gone down that road, you would have fallen away from Christ? You would have renounced Jesus. You would have given up your faith in Christ. But Jesus, working throughout the the fine points of our lives, is protecting us from all of these things, from being snatched away, from being lost, from being destroyed, from being ruined, from perishing, all of that. And just as Christ protects His church, husbands must also protect their wives. And the protective role of the husband can be seen even in the tiny things and scenarios of life. So an example of this, and I I think this is the innate, natural uh, way of it as a husband and a wife relate to each other. So husband and wife are at home, wife's maybe, you know, doing something around the house, and she kind of out of the corner of her eye, she sees something kind of crawling along the floor, along the wall, along the counter, and immediately... What tends to happen, and maybe not, maybe some of you wives are like, no, I do it. But, I mean, what, what typically happens, I know what happens for me, what typically happens is uh, you get, if you're a husband, you get, you get a, a little bit of a, a yell or, or a call for you to come in and take care of that. It's a little spider crawling on the ground, and the husband is the one who's called in to sort of kill this little spider. This, this, this spider's not going to, you know, unless it's a, a black widow or something, it's, it's not going to kill her. But it's just a simple illustration, I think, of the fact that there is innate in women 
to know that, hey, I'm going to call my husband. He'll take care of this spider. I know there were, I, I hate spiders. So there was one occurrence where Jennifer and I, we were in the mountains. We were at a cabin, and uh, there was this massive spider. He had huge, tall, he, was, he had tall legs. He was really smart. He was kind of watching me. I mean, he, I'm serious. This spider was, he, he, this spider had some intelligence. And he was kind of moving side to side, and I didn't want to mess with it. But Jennifer, neither one of us wanted to mess with it. And Jennifer finally broke down and said, you kill it. You're the man. <laughs> and so, of course, at that point, there was no choice. I mean, I had to do my, you know, I had to, I had to do it at that point. But I think this really illustrates for us that that is, there's something innate, natural, about a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, that, that tells us that even in those tiny, silly details of life, that the husband is the protector of his wife. So how does this responsibility to protect play out for us in practical terms? What does this look like for us husbands? Well, the first thing, on a very basic level, is we ask ourselves, practically speaking, what does it look like for a husband to be a protector of his wife as Christ is a protector of the church? Most fundamentally, I think, he is, this involves him protecting her from physical injury and death. And I think this, you know, that has a basic application. Think about this for a moment. Think about the, the safety of your home, the safety of her vehicle. How often do, do men tend to think about that? You know, your wife's driving around in a car and, and you know, are, is, the, is the tire pressure right in the tires? Have you checked the oil? I, I mean, have things been done so that the car is, is good to go, so that it's a safe place for your wife? It, it, it boils down to all of these various little practical things, the safety of the home. Is it a place where your wife can flourish and thrive, or is it a place that will be dangerous to her? It has to do, I think, with health and health care. Is this something that is provided for your wife so that you're taking care of her, you're avoiding injury and death? So on a very basic level, I think it means that. The very opposite of this is physical abuse. So I just want to speak to this for a moment. The hope and the prayer is, of course, that there is no wife in here now who is physically abused by her husband. Hit, smacked, beaten, any of that. Pushed, held tightly, whatever it may be. I just want you to understand, husband, that when you do this, you not only fail to do what it is that you are called to do in protecting your wife, you do the very thing that is the opposite of what God has called you to do and to be. You become then a means of her injury as opposed to a means of her protection. That is a, a total inversion of God's will. And it does not please the Lord in any way. And, and I would say for wives who are in that situation, I think that this, this, is, this is a time where you separate from your husband and you call upon the church to come alongside of you and to help walk through this with you. But you don't have to subject yourself, stay in that home and subject yourself to physical violence. That is not something that God would want you to do, to sit under that and to continue for that husband's sin to be perpetuated. So physical violence against a spouse is unacceptable. And the church, I believe, is called to come alongside of a wife who's being abused physically by her husband and to support her financially in every way, to come alongside of her, help her, love her through that. But husbands, what you need to know is that this is the exact opposite of what you are called to do and be to your wife. So I think it means protecting her from physical injury 
and death. It also means protecting her from physical and emotional breakdown or ruin. Think about this for a moment. How often do you consider your wife's rest? Is that something that maybe flies through your mind every once in a while? Is it something that you really are concerned about? Your wife's rest. We know that Christ is concerned with our rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, uh, we read in Hebrews, that ultimately Christ came to give us rest. He came to fulfill the Sabbath, which will one day be fulfilled when we are with him in a new heaven and new earth. And we will enjoy perfect rest. We will work without toil and labor. I don't, and no one, we, we don't know what that looks like. But we will. We will work and we will flourish as human beings. We will have perfect and endless rest. So here's my plea to us husbands. Make her vitality your priority. Make her vitality your priority. You may say, well, hold on a second. If I do this, then I'm going to be tired. <laughs> right? So if I, if I make my wife's rest my priority, what about me? I'm going to be exhausted. I need rest too. You know, I come home at the end of the day and I need rest. I need to, I need to feel, you know, it's, it's a hard day. Maybe, maybe you work outside under the sun. Maybe you work in, in a way where you're constantly having to engage with people. And so when you get home at the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is talk or engage on, on kind of an emotional level. You've just been doing that all day. We all have different kinds of jobs. We all have different responsibilities, different drains, demands on our time. But here's the one thing I want to say to us husbands Remember Christ, who gave himself up for his church. If we pursued our, wife's, our wives' rest, if we pursued their rest, then here's what we can know. We can entrust our rest into our Father's hand. In other words, what, if, what would happen if husbands stopped pursuing their own comfort, their own ease, their own rest, and started to say, Lord... I commit myself to making sure that my wife has rest and vitality in her life and I entrust that for me to you. You take care of me, Father. I'm going to take care of her. That's what it looks like to be a godly husband. Not to take it into our own hands to look after ourselves, but to lay ourselves down to look after our wives and to trust that God will give us the rest we need. He will providentially provide everything we husbands need as we faithfully lay ourselves down day after day in accordance with His Word. So it's about faith. Ultimately, husbands, it is about faith in God. This is also the opposite of verbal and emotional abuse. Your wife should be one that you provide rest for instead of angst and distress and a sense of anxiety and fear and, 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 and fear of failure and all of these ideas in her mind where she feels beat down and crushed. Emotional abuse where you critique her and you endlessly pound her with your words and you sarcastically dismiss her. All of that is the opposite of what it means to protect our wives emotionally, mentally, physically in every single way. That's what we are called to as husbands. Not to berate them, not to dismiss them, or sarcastically engage with them, but to lovingly build them up. Which is what Christ does for each of us. I think it also means protecting her from the schemes of the enemy. 
from the schemes of the evil one. Look over at Ephesians 6, verse 11. Ephesians 6, 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the what? The schemes of the devil. I want to ask you a question, husband. You know, this... We, had, we recently had some friends from Great Britain. We lived in Great Britain for four years, and we recently had some friends come and stay with us. And one of the things that you know, is very culturally different from the South and all of Europe, really, but, but Britain as, as one of the countries there, well, I guess not anymore, but anyway. <laughs> um, but one of the differences, big differences between Britain and the American South is the issue of guns. So, you know, I, I, if I polled us this morning... See how many of guys in here have guns right now? It'd probably be pretty up there. We we won't we won't do that. We no need to scare all the rest of you who maybe are concerned about that. Uh, but one of the things that became apparent, you know, they came and they stayed with us, and we got into, you know, they they were laughing about how there were guns at Walmart and all kinds of other stuff, and uh, and so we got into lots of good discussion about that. But one of the things that I think can be very ironic is yes, we protect our wives physically, and this may mean having guns. One of the things that's so ironic to me is what would it be like for a man to have have security alarm, guns, multiple guns, everything he needs to protect the, the home and everything he needs to protect his wife, and he does nothing in the way of spiritual warfare. That's a foolish, foolish husband. We need to realize that there is a target on our wives. Have you ever thought about that? That there, if you, if you were walking through the park or walking through the street in the middle of a city and a man was eyeing your wife and was going to attack her, you probably would lose it. And you probably would do whatever it took to make sure that nothing happened to your precious bride. Of course, I hope we should all do that in accordance with the first thing I had to say. Do you realize, husband, that there is a target on your wife? That there is one who moves around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he seeks to devour your wife. He seeks to destroy her, to unsettle her, to pull her away from God. And so the husband, who arms himself to the teeth physically but does nothing spiritually, forgets. The, the enemy that his wife truly faces and always faces, that enemy that can only be defeated in prayer, that enemy that can only be fought with spiritual weapons. And so we read in chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So question for husbands, and I've asked this question before, but do you arm yourself for battle on behalf of your wife? Do you first realize that your wife faces a real threat every day? She faces one who wants to devour her and destroy her. There is a target. There is someone who is, who is stalking your wife. The devil. Every day. Do you arm yourself against him? Are you strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might? Do you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand? 
against the schemes of the devil. And this, I think, first and foremost, means that a husband has to protect himself. Because you put on the full armor of God. You protect yourself from the schemes of the devil. And you protect yourself from leading your wife into sin. This is one of the things that you can frequently find in marriages. Not only are husbands not protecting their wives, they're doing the very opposite. They are leading their wives in the things that they, that they give their time to. And the, the kinds of entertainment that they, that they have in the home and in their lives. And the ways that they interact with other people. They are giving their wives over to temptation. ...that they would not have if it were not for the husband. So it's the exact opposite of what God, I think, calls us to here. So you're protected so that you're not leading her into temptation and sin. You are watchful in prayer. Look at verse 18 of chapter 6. Verse 18, it says, "...praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication." You know, I said a few weeks back that... Husbands need to rise for battle every morning. Do you do that, husband? Do you rise and just sort of roll out of bed and go to work? Do you rise and just sort of roll out of bed and go through your phone and do all your, your own things? Or do you rise to engage in spiritual warfare for your wife? To pray for her. To put her before the Lord. And to do this, Paul says, with all perseverance... Keeping watch. This is not just a little prayer. God, be with my wife today. Amen. That's not just a little prayer like that. This is a constant sort of abiding in prayer before the Lord as you are struggling, wrestling. This is the imagery, wrestling with Satan on her behalf. And I think this means a number of other things too. You guard her worldview. She is not following the course of this world. What kind of culture do you create at your home? Is it a materialistic culture? Is it a pagan idolatrous culture? Is it a culture that, that pursues the God of leisure and comfort and weekends and holidays and vacations? Is it the kind of, of false God that our culture worships? Or do you create in your home a God-honoring, God-centered environment? A place where God is held up above all the other idols, above all the idols of this world. So you protect her from, you protect her worldview. You also guard her from her own passions with gracious accountability. Think about this. Your wife is living out her Christian life in front of you. You see all of her imperfections. You see all of the things that she's not doing that, that you know that God calls her to in His Word. Are you gracious with her on those things? Or are you pointing them out? You know, you're not doing that. You're not doing that. And God tells you you need to do that. How many of you did that after the submission sermons? How many of you driving home with your wife? You know, um, I was thinking as I was listening to that sermon, I, you don't really do that. Gracious accountability. This is holding her accountable as you come alongside of her brother in Christ. If you two are in Christ, you are her brother. And that transcends even your physical marriage. Imagine that. That, that the longer standing relationship, husband, that you have to your wife is you are her eternal brother in the Lord. Do you act that way towards her? Are you discipling two or three guys, but not your wife? Are you focused on all these other people in the church, but, but, but not her struggles and her passions? You also guard her from anger and bitterness. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. 
to protect ourselves from the devil, to protect our wives from the devil, means that we do not force her into a place of anger. How many of your wives are thoroughly frustrated with you, husband? And you know it. You know it. You're pinning her into a corner. She's just boiling over in bitterness. You're leading her into anger, leading her into temptation. You're giving space for the devil to protect our wives means that we must guard her from anger and bitterness. So here's kind of a bottom line point to think about. Be connected to your companion so that you can protect her. I mean, how many of us just aren't connected to our wives in any way, really? We don't talk with them. We don't know what their passions and struggles and desires are because we don't even talk to them. And if we do talk to them, maybe it's about just what happened and what's happening next and what's happening tomorrow and what our schedules are so we can coordinate and all of this other stuff. Maybe that's, that's the extent of it. That's the deepest it goes in the relationship, maybe, between you and your wife. How in the world can you do any of these things for your precious bride if you don't even know her? Impossible. Impossible. It begins with being connected. But I want to make this last point. A husband's protection falls short. Always. I was re recently reading about women who in the last few years have been taken by ISIS and made to be sex slaves. Women and girls, teenage girls, even small girls taken. And it got me thinking a little bit about how horrific that must be for those husbands. Man, they come to town and they take your wife and they make her a sex slave. How awful that must be for Christian husbands. Many of whom were just killed. But I think it reminds us that we can't perfectly protect our wives. Not physically, not spiritually, we can't. We simply can't, but God can. And at the end of the day, we ultimately are entrusting our wives into the hands of our Savior, into the hands of their protector. Christ is their Savior. Christ is their protector in ways that we could never be. And so we're always falling back on that. Husbands, we do not bear the responsibility of perfect protection. We do what we can before the Lord, faithful to the Lord, but ultimately we have to entrust them and our children into God's hands. So I want to finish this morning with this last point. He protects and the godly husband disciples in leading and loving his wife as Christ does the church. The husband has the responsibility of pursuing his wife's spiritual growth. He makes her sanctification and her discipleship his top priority. Look at verses 26 to 27 in Ephesians 5. That he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In these verses, we see Christ's activity of purifying his bride, the church. And what I want you to see is that this is the ultimate purpose of his self-giving love, to bring his bride to glory. As we read in verse 27, to present the church to himself in splendor. That is to present the church 
to present her as perfectly pure, as it says here, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and without blemish. One day, the church, and that's the entire universal church, and that's every individual person who makes up the church, will be before Christ and with Christ, undefiled, free from sin, entirely conformed into his image. It's that, that imagery that we get in 1 John 3, 2 where he says that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will be reunited with the bridegroom. We studied long, a long time ago, John 14, verses 1 to 3. And Jesus said in those verses, I go to his, to his disciples as he's departing, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. What Jesus is saying there is that he, the bridegroom, goes to prepare a place, a home, for he himself and his bride. He will come back, get his bride, and take her to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He will take her there, as we read in Revelation chapter 19, he will take her there to live with him in his father's house. That is where everything is headed. And this is what drove the Apostle Paul's ministry. As he says, it was his goal to... In Colossians 1.28, to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And he says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, listen to this, I betrothed you. That's what Paul said to the, to the churches. I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And this final purity that awaits the church, that awaits us, takes place through the sanctifying work of Christ that we read about in verse 26. He says in that verse that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. The church is set apart and given new birth by the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 describes it this way, that, we have been, that there has been a washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So here's the bottom line. Here's what I want you to see. Christ cares for the sanctity and purity of of his church. And if the husband is to love his bride, husbands, if we are to love our bride as Christ loved the church, we must pursue her sanctification and purity. We must disciple her. So what does this mean as we finish up this morning? What does this mean for us husbands? And I think we get three basic answers here from the details of these verses. The first, I want you to notice that the purity is the purpose for the self-sacrifice. Think about this for a moment. As you, as you sacrifice yourself in all of these various ways, in conversation, in arguments, in how you come home and work around the house, and how you take the kids so that your wife can have some rest time, and all the things that you do self-sacrificially daily to lay down your life for your wife, as you do those things, you do it with a purpose. Notice that. You do it with a purpose. Verse 26 it says that, in order that he might sanctify her. This tells us that our selflessness is a discipleship program for our wives. If you want to see your wife grow in Christ, you want to disciple her, you want to move her along in sanctification, the primary way that you do that is by laying down your life for her, self-sacrificially, modeling Christ for her. And as you do that, she is drawn to the Savior whom you image. This also means that you don't lord your wife's need to grow over her. Some, some of us husbands are, so, you know, you have, you have the 
kind of intense husband and the kind of, you know, laid back husband. I'm, I, those are words, I'm going to use the nice words. So intense and laid back. You could say domineering and harsh and passive and lazy. But we'll say, we'll, 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 go, we'll, go, we'll go with kinder uh, descriptions here. So it's kind of, kind of the two kind of extremes that you have. So, you know, frequently we've been, we've been kind of talking about the, the more passive kind of husband because that, a lot of that has been in view here. But I want you to see that there's, there's a temptation for the more intense, maybe harsh, maybe domineering type of husband or the one who struggles with that. And that is that we really do pursue our wife's discipleship, but we do it in this kind of way. We're like, you know, you need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to grow, and this is very important. Have you read that book? And have you read, and have you, are you doing your devotions? Have you, have you prayed? You know, we're just constantly doing this, doing this, doing this, right? That is a possibility for us husbands. And what we need to understand is that discipleship grows out of, not all of that, but self-giving sacrifice. The way the text reads here, self-giving sacrifice first has the purpose and leads into the growth of your wife. In Christ. Notice also all of the purpose language. Verse 26, in order that. Verse 27, you get two purpose clauses. In order that. In order that. Here's what this tells us, guys. There should be much intentionality in how we love our wives and promote their spiritual growth. This is not just a a matter of, uh, oh, yeah, I'll read the Bible with you. Yeah, you know, I'll take you to church. But this is uh, taking an active role, an intentionality, a planning in coming alongside of your wife to help her grow spiritually. In, in fact, I think every wife should come, should be holding a sign when she gets married. It should say, mental effort and communication required. <laughs> mental effort and communication, intentionality required. How many of us husbands have none of that? No intentionality, no planning, no sense of purpose. Just kind of floating through life and floating through marriage and floating through the day. This is not the kind of intentionality of our Lord Jesus. He came with an intention and purpose and he got his church. He protected her, he rescued her, and he purifies her. Finally, I want you to notice the means of sanctification. By the word. So how do you sanctify your wife by the word? Finally, just three practical ways, men, that we can sanctify our wives, can help to sanctify our wives by the word. First, most fundamentally, personal example. This is the big question. Do we love the word of God? Men, do we love the purifying, cleansing sanctifying, saving, regenerating Word of God. Because if we don't love it, there's no way we're going to be able to to breed love for it in our wife's heart. It's not going to happen. We have to love the Word. Do we trust it? When things come upon us and there are struggles in life, do we come home just beat down and stressed out? Man, I don't know how this is going to work out. This is terrible. You know, I'm just struggling. I'm so distraught. Or do we trust in God and His Word and stand firm on that. Do we love the Word? Do we trust the Word? It's about personal example. You know, every husband is a pastor of his home. Every husband is a shepherd. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, we read that the shepherds of the church, the shepherds of the flock of God, are to lead by example. And that is exactly how the shepherd of every home must lead by example. Do you have family worship in your home? 
Family devotions, a time where you grab your children and you grab God's word and you ask your wife to come and you gather them together and you orchestrate it, you plan it, you initiate it and you say, let's gather around the precious, life-giving, purifying word of our God. Or no. That is part of what it means to disciple your wife. Do you commit to corporate worship, to coming to church to hear God's word preached and taught? And finally, and this one I think is very practical for wives, do you plan and sacrifice to carve out devotional time for your wife? One of the biggest reasons that wives don't have a lot of time to be in the Bible is because we're selfish. That's just the truth. Our wives doing other things that we could be doing. So how many of us could lay down our lives, give our wives time with God and His Word, to say, I need to make sure that I, I put this in my day so that she, I can gather up all the things that burden her, all of the things that are weighing her down, all of her responsibilities, and I can put them over here on my plate so that she can go by herself and spend time with the Lord in prayer, reading His Word. A godly husband protects and disciples His precious bride. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness of it. We thank you for how it speaks to the very practical situations of our lives. God, we pray for husbands today that as we continue this portion of the series, God, that you will just continue to work on husbands. Every day this week, God, would you just, would you just pour out grace, convicting grace in our hearts as husbands, God, we plead with you. We need you. Help us to be Christ-like husbands in our homes. In Christ's name, amen.